tell you a story as we start today. John Ortberg is a uh, minister and a Christian author, and he, uh, he tells about when he was younger. He and his wife were young. They had three small children, four, two and a half, and six months old, and they bought their first piece of really nice furniture. So you think about little kids and new furniture, you can see where this is going. But they had an old Volkswagen, and they sold that Volkswagen and got enough money to buy a pink couch. Now, John said it was pink, but he said the man at the store called it mauve, but it was pink. When you pay that much, he said, you can't call it pink. You have to call it mauve. And it was a mauve couch, and they put that in the living room, and as soon as they got it home the very first day, his wife set those, four, those three children down, and she said, this is the number one rule. This is how she said it. Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't play near the mauve sofa. Don't eat around the mauve sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't even breathe on the mauve sofa. I don't want you to think about the mauve sofa. On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit, but on this sofa, the mob sofa, you may not sit. For on the day that you sit thereon, you shall surely die. <laughs> I think the kids probably got the message about the mob sofa. Now, I grew up in a day where some of my relatives, you know, had really nice furniture, and they put this thick plastic on it, and you could sit on it, but you couldn't enjoy it because... Just, just face it, that thick, clear plastic was not very comfortable. But they had this sofa, and they didn't put the clear plastic on it. And then one day, his wife walked in, and there was a red stain on the mauve sofa. Not just your ordinary, everyday red stain. It was a red jelly stain. And immediately, she called all the kids in and lined them up beside the mauve sofa, and she began to preach. And she began to accuse. And she said, you're going to stand there for eternity until somebody tells me who put the stain on the mauve sofa. And the kids were silent. And John said he watched. And finally, the two-and-a-half-year-old pointed to her older sister and said, she did it. And the older sister said, I did not. And they stood there in silence. And he knew that they were not going to confess because, number one, they had never seen their mom so mad. Number two, they knew if they confessed, they would be in time out forever. And number three, he knew that neither one of them had put the stain on the sofa because he had put the stain on the sofa. And he wasn't talking. Now, I'll tell you that story to tell you this. We've all stained the sofa. At some point in our life, it may not be a mauve sofa, but there's a sofa somewhere, there's a chair somewhere, there's some issue where you messed up and you did something that you knew was wrong. In that house, it was wrong to eat jelly on the mauve sofa, and he did it. We've all done it. We've all stained the sofa. We've all messed up in our life. We've all committed some wrong. We have all, as the Bible says, sinned. 
and we have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, you can try to cover it up. You can try to clean it up. You can try to deny it. You can try to blame it on somebody else. You can do all this stuff, but that does not change the fact that you have stained the sofa. Somewhere you have messed up in your life. And probably, no, not probably, for certain, more than once. We have all sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God. We are all at fault. Now what do we do? When we're at fault, what do we do? There's a word in the Bible for what we are to do. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're continuing our series called The Basics of the Faith. And we've talked about the fact as Christian people, there's some things, some basics that help us with our faith, that help us grow to spiritual maturity, and we begin with these things. First of all, we believe that God is the Creator. Secondly, we believe the Bible, cover to cover, is God's Word to man. Third, we believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and our Lord and Savior. Fourth, we have to have faith. We have to believe in those things and trust those things. And today, uh, last week, we talked about that real faith. And today, we're going to talk about repentance. That's our word for today, repentance. So I want you to think about, and so we asked the question, what is repentance? A lot of people may have in their mind what they think that is, but we're going to think about what repentance really is. You know, it's one of those words that um, you just don't hear it much anymore in the church. I'll be honest, I hadn't, I, I, last time I preached on repentance was a long time ago. And, you know, a lot of churches just feel, well, it's kind of hard to talk about repentance. It's something that, you know, we don't want, it's too harsh. We don't want to push people away. We're trying to draw people in. But it is a doctrine in the church that we need to understand. And we had better take it seriously. I'll tell you why. It's a prerequisite to salvation. The Scripture commands that we repent. Jesus said in Luke 3, 13, 3, unless you repent, you too will all perish. So repentance is something we need to come to know about and to understand. It is a basic of the faith. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 today, and let's think about this idea of repentance. Of course, the Corinthian letters, or two of them, were written to the church at Corinth. It's sort of a new church the Apostle Paul had established. It's full of people. Corinth is a melting pot of all kinds of people. The church had some issues and some problems. That's why he wrote the first letter. He wrote the second letter uh, to follow up on that. And in the context of this specific chapter here, he's writing to tell them that at first he thought he, he had written another letter to reprimand them. Maybe it was the first Corinthians letter. Maybe it was another letter for some sin that they had. And he had written a letter to them, and it was pretty harsh. And so he was afraid that, that he was maybe too hard on them. They stained the sofa too, and he got on to them. And he, he felt some remorse that maybe he was too hard. But then Titus, one of his uh, 
cohorts, one of his companions in ministry, had been to Corinth and had come to where Paul was, and he says, you know what? Your letter worked. They repented. And they were glad uh, after they initially were hurt, they were glad you had written to them uh, to straighten out this problem. And so Paul writes back, and he helps us here to come to understand this idea of repentance. So let's read 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, beginning at verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorrow, sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so you were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on the account of the one who did the wrong or on the account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. All the, by all this, we are encouraged. So we begin today, uh, as we think about this, and we think about uh, several elements that have to do with repentance. First, I want to begin with a definition of repentance. And, defini and, and uh, repentance means simply this, it means to change the mind. That's what the Greek word from the original Greek this was written in means. The word metanoia. It means to, to change what's going on in here. To change your feeling about something, your, your will, your perspective, your thought. That is, you previously looked at something one way, and now you have changed, and you see that in a totally different light. It changes not only how you think about it then, but that will change your behavior. In a biblical term, it has to do with a change from going your way or the way of the world to going the way that God wants you to go. You know, so often we think in worldly terms. We think about what's going to please me, what's going to make me happy, and we forget sometimes to think about what God would have me to do. The Bible has another word for that other than worldly. It talks about living in the flesh or living a fleshly life. It comes from our sin nature, which we are all born with this bent toward doing what pleases me rather than what pleases God. So we need to learn a more godly behavior and thinking in the ways that are more God-honoring rather than trying to lift myself up and honor myself. Sometimes we need a little help with that, as was the case with Paul. He had to push the church a little bit. He had to call them out on this sin that they had, and he had to straighten them out. He caused them to think about it, to change their mind, and to start going the way that they needed to go. 
Kenneth Chafin is a Christian author, and he tells a story about when he was a little boy. He went to visit his Aunt Ida, and he spent the summer with Aunt Ida, and while he was there uh, at Aunt Ida's house, he got a boil on his leg, and this thing began to fester, and it began to grow and get bigger, and it turned red, and, and he wouldn't let anybody touch it, wouldn't let anybody, and it was just getting worse. And finally, one day, Aunt Ida comes in, and she says, Kenneth, we're going to lance that boil. No, you can't touch it. I don't want you to do it. She's got this big pen, this straight pen, and a bottle of disinfectant. She said, Kenneth, you need to change the way you think about this. It's going to take a little pain, but this little pain is going to stop a big pain later on. And sometimes we have to do that in our life. She lanced the boil and the leg got better, and the infection went away. Sometimes we have to inflict a little pain on ourselves. That is, we have to come to the reality that I have not done what God wants me to do. I need to change. I need to change the way I think. And sometimes it may take someone's word to us. Sometimes it just takes a little introspection. You look at your life and you say, you know, I bet God's not happy with me for the way I'm doing this or that, for the stains that I put on the sofa. Sometimes we read the Word of God and we say, whoa, I never read that before. That's, I'm outside the will of God. I'm not doing what God wants me to do. And we reflect on our lives. Sometimes the Holy Spirit, which we have when we believe in Jesus, comes in to live in us and it begins to to touch our heart and begins to convict us that we need to change. We come to this point where we say something is not right and it's my fault and I need to change the way I think about it, and we do. That's, that's the beginning of repentance, and that's to understand that it has to do with a change in the mind. Now, I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, back at verse 9. Your sorrow led to repentance. And then verse 10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Biblical repentance stems from godly sorrow. Now, as the text indicates, there's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. We can live either way. We have free will. We can choose to live for the world or we can choose to live for God. There's no in-between. If you're not living for God, you're living for the world. And we can choose to do that. But there's a difference between those. Worldly sorrow is so much more self-centered. It's about me. It's about myself and what I want and what I want to do. And the Bible often compares Godliness to worldliness. And that worldliness is sometimes, as I said, flesh. Living in the flesh. Living in the sin nature. Let me help you think about worldly sorrow for a minute. We can have worldly sorrow. We can be sorry. You know what that looks like? Boy, I sure am sorry I got caught doing that thing that was wrong. Boy, I, I, I sure am sorry I messed up my life. I sure am sorry I'm going to have to pay the price for what I did. See, that's all about me. 
But godly sorrow is sorry that I sinned against God. Now, you can sin against other people, and you should be sad about that too. But ultimately, you should be sad when you sin. When you stain the sofa, you should be sad before God that you sinned against Him. First and foremost, you know when you sin, when you fall short of God's glory, that grieves God. He's not happy. He hurts for you. He hurts because you have rebelled against Him. But He hurts also because He sees what you're doing to your life. King David, the greatest king of Israel in his day, committed several sins, but one of the most and most publicized in the Bible was his adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. He wrote a whole psalm about that, a psalm of repentance. And in that psalm, Psalm 51, verse 4, he begins out and he says, Against you, you only, he's talking to God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. He recognized his ultimate sin was not against Bathsheba, not against the people of Israel, but against God. He let God down. He sinned against God. You know, sin is anything. A lot of people have a problem. They think sin is just this thing that's going to get your name in the paper when you did something wrong. Sin is anything that's outside the will of God. If you do something that goes against what God desires, that's a sin. It can be what we say. For example, it can be saying a bad word, taking the Lord's name in vain, telling a lie to somebody. Sin can be what we say. Sin can also be what we think. Lust. Even though it never comes out of the mind, you sit and stare and lust or coveting. You desire something wrongly that somebody else has. You wish they were dead and they didn't have it, and you had it. You covet. It can also be what you do. Doing something hurtful to somebody. Killing somebody. Cheating, uh, being a bad person, uh, deceiving somebody, committing adultery, those things. Did you know you can even sin when you fail to do the right thing? The Bible says, uh, he who fails to do the right thing sins. So we got to think about our lives and the sin that's in our lives. These things are done out of self-centeredness please self, to lift myself up, to exalt myself so I will look good in others' eyes. But the truth is that all of us have this sin nature and we have to fight against it all the time. That's why God gave us the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and to help us overcome. I want to tell on myself for just a minute. Back when I went to... Uh, Johnson University, it was Johnson Bible College back then, uh, was still a credited university, but that's where I got my degree from. And, and while I was there, I worked on the painting crew. And in fact, became, became the leader of the painting crew. They did a lot of maintenance and work there, built a lot of buildings, and they had houses that students lived in. And I did, led the crew that did the painting. In the summertime, I worked full-time 
when school was in, I worked about 12 hours a week and had five or six uh, work-study students that helped me, and we did the painting. And uh, one day, I got a work order. I was supposed to paint the side of the garage to the president's house. And this side didn't get very much sun, and it had some mildew on it, and I washed it, and I had to paint it, and it was getting close to quitting time on Friday at 5 o'clock, and I was about out of paint, and I had somewhere I had to go with the family, and so I wanted to get done in a hurry, and I was about out of paint, and I didn't have time to go get more paint, and so I thinned the paint down with some water. And I finished up the bottom part of that building with the paint, and it rained that night, and it washed part of the paint off, and Monday morning... Dr. Eubanks, the president, his wife called me and she said, Mark, she's a sweet little lady, but she's a stern little lady. I need you to come look at my garage. And I got over there and I knew what was wrong. And I looked at it and she said, this is two different colors here. This is not right. I said, Miss Eubanks, I'm sorry. I I thinned the paint down because it was about out and I was in a hurry. And I'll, I'll repaint. She looked at me and she pointed that finger and she said, Repaint you thinner and thin no more. <laughs> she didn't really say that, but that sounds better than what she said. We've all thinned the paint. We've all stained the sofa. We've all messed up. And we need to repaint. Repaint you thinner. And thin no more. We all have this tendency. And sometimes we're wrong. And sometimes we're just weak. And we fall into this. You know what though? Jesus died on the cross for that. And if you were the only person on this earth. He would have still died to save you from that sin. His death paid the penalty for your sin. And if you believe. Then you are forgiven. And he sends us the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit will help us with that tendency to sin, to guide us and direct us if we open our lives up and we let, us, uh, let him come in and lead us and guide us. And when we slip, that sorrow will come in, the Spirit will help us with that, and it will begin to soften our heart and change us. There's a third element here. Look back with me at verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, and what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. You see what's happening. True repentance produces a godly perspective. You see, when we repent, uh, we, we begin to see things more God's way. These folks had, had repented, and it changed them. They, they were looking at life with a totally new perspective. The Bible calls us to examine ourselves. In fact, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, 28, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Before we take communion, we are to examine ourselves. We are to say, Lord, is there something going on in here? Can you help me? Are there things in my life that I need to change? We examine ourselves. In 1 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. 
Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And we are to think about that often. We are to examine ourselves and say, Okay, i got Jesus living in me through the Holy Spirit. That Spirit wants to guide and direct me. Am I following the Spirit? Or am I going the way of the world? Am I living more godly? Or am I living more worldly? Do I look any different than the rest of the people that are going the way of the world? And so true repentance helps us with that. We look inside and we recognize that Jesus lives in me and he's there to guide me and direct me and open my mind to the ways and the will of God. And I'm striving to live for that. So unless I open up, I won't grow. Unless I let the Spirit guide me, I'm not going to grow in spiritual maturity. Unless I get into his word and read his word, I'm not going to grow beyond where I'm at now because I won't learn anything new unless I am involved in, in a group, a, a church or a, a Bible study or something where I'm taking in God's word and learning from it. And so we come as we do that to realize how far we are from what God wants us to be. Listen, I'm not perfect. Billy Graham wasn't perfect. The Pope's not perfect. There's no perfect people on this earth. We've all stained the sofa. We've all thinned the paint. And here we are together. Now hopefully, you recognize, I'm not the person God wants me to be. I tell you, I'm not even the person I want to be yet. But hopefully we can say, because of you, God, because of the Holy Spirit in my life, I've grown and I'm not the person I used to be. Because I have repented, and I'm not seeking the world anymore. I'm seeking to follow God and His way and His will. And the more you become in tune with the will of God, the more you grow, and the more you will overcome the ways of the world. Our perspective about life will change. You'll become, as it says, more earnest and more eager. And you'll become more alarmed at the problems and you'll long to, to be better and you'll, you'll have a readiness to see justice come into your life. That you'll have this desire to please God. Michigan basketball player Rumiel Robinson uh, was a point guard for Michigan. They played Wisconsin in 1989 early in the season. And as he played that game, it came down to the end. They were behind by one point with just seconds to go, and he got fouled. And he got to shoot two free throws, and he missed them both. If he would have made just one, it would have went to overtime, and they would have been tied up, and they would have had a chance to win. If he would have made both of them, they would have won the game. But he missed both. He was sorry. As you can imagine, you know, he didn't blame anybody else. He blamed himself. He was sorry. But you know what he did? He repented. That's not a biblical repentance, but he repented. And he said, you know what? i got to do better. And so he stayed after practice every day, and he shot 100 extra free throws every day because he wanted to do better. And it came down to the last game of the season. They were in the NCAA championship in 1989, and once again, with seconds to go, Rumiel got fouled. And he had a chance at two foul shots, 
and they were behind by one point. It was 79 to 78. And Rumiel went to the foul line, and guess what he did? He made both shots because he repented. He changed. He looked at this with a totally different perspective. I have to work at this, and I'm going to become what my team needs me to be. Listen, God wants you to become what he wants you to become. And if you work at that and you repent of seeking the ways of the world, you can become everything that God wants you to be. So here's our connection. An attitude of repentance is one of the marks of a devoted disciple of Jesus. You see, repentance is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. I recognize that I'm always growing and I'm always becoming what God wants me to be. Paul says there that he wrote to them in verse 12, before God you could see uh, yourselves how devoted you are. Before God you could see how devoted you are. The scripture calls us to repent. Peter preached that sermon on the day of Pentecost. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we're called to believe and to repent and to be baptized. And that's the beginning of a change. We seek to be sorry for our sin. That I've gone the way of the world. And God, I ask you to forgive me, and I'm going to turn, and I'm going to begin to strive to live a more godly lifestyle. So it's not a one-time thing. It's a continuous thing for the rest of our lives. I don't know if you saw the Indiana Jones movies. There are a number of those. They're pretty good movies. And in this one movie, uh, The Last Crusade, Indiana Jones is seeking the Holy Grail. Uh, some say it's the, it's the cup that Christ drank out of at the Last Supper. Uh, there was always this mythological belief that if you drank from the Holy Grail, it was like the fountain of youth and it would keep you young. And Indiana is chasing this Holy Grail and he goes through a lot and, and he finally has it in sight and he's reaching for it, but he's hanging on the edge of a cliff with his other hand. And he's reaching out for the Holy Grail and he's trying to, trying to grab hold of that thing. It's really symbolic for the things of this world that we chase thinking that they're going to make us have the full life. And his father, Sean Connery, I love Sean Connery, he's standing over him. And he says, Indiana, no, let me, let me pull you up because he's about to slip. He's just hanging on by fingers. Let it go, he says, let it go. And eventually Indiana realizes he can't grasp it and he turns and he reaches up and he grabs hold of his father and his father pulls him up to safety. Now I want to help you think about something. Because in religious terms, you know, we think about grace and we think about repentance and faith and salvation. As you think about that scene there, look at it this way. The grace is the father reaching out to take hold. And the repentance is when Indiana decides... I'm not going after that thing of the world. I'm going to turn back to my father. And the, and the faith is when he reaches for the father. And the salvation is when the father grabs hold of him and pulls him up. And you all have that same shot. 
Because God is reaching out to you. He's showing you His grace. He wants to save you. But the truth is, you've got to repent, you've got to turn, and you've got to reach for Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today for Your grace for the fact that you, you give us opportunity to receive that grace as we have faith and we repent and we reach for your son Jesus. The Bible tells us that he, his death on the cross was for our sins that we might be forgiven. And so I pray today that you would help us to take that seriously. That you would help us to take this idea of repentance seriously. And Lord, that we would think about it throughout our lives and, and that we would think how... Am I going the way of the world when I need to be going the way of God? And that you would help guide us and direct us in that direction that we might please you and bring glory and honor to you. For it's in the strong and mighty name, the gracious name of Jesus that we pray and praise today. Amen.